I said, guys, come on, we got to go. We're late. Martin said, no, we're not late. I called the house, dinner's now to six. You told me it was five. I'm in no hurry. Take a seat. It was three guys hanging out. That really was what it was until we stepped on that balcony. That was Reverend Samuel Billy Kiles, who was in close proximity to Dr. Martin Luther King when he was assassinated. Welcome to Before You Go, I'm Nicole Franklin. And I'm Bryant Monte. And Bryant, you were covering the dedication of the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial in 2011 when you captured Reverend Kiles' incredible story as a witness. I mean, you had the chance to talk with and interview those who were close to King, Kyles, Jesse Jackson. Tell us more. Yes. Well, I traveled to D.C. This was in August of 2011. And you could say I was on assignment. I was working at WVON in Chicago. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Shout out to Chicago and WVON. (laughs) Yes. And there was a small contingency of us that traveled to the dedication of Dr. King's monument. Now, it was scheduled to be in August. However, there was the hurricane, if you guys remember, Hurricane Irene that postponed the full dedication, you know, with President Obama and all the dignitaries. They also rescheduled this for October 16th. Now, I did have a chance to speak with a few of the civil rights leaders who were living at that time. Of course, there was uh, Dr. Joseph Lowry, who we highlighted a couple episodes before this one, and Jesse Jackson, Billy Kyles, Otis Moss Jr., also Andrew Young. So that was part of what I was there to do, is to capture the moment and to capture some of the stories of these gentlemen who actually worked closely with Dr. King. I'm sure it was an incredible moment for the guys to be there, seeing this uh, statue of their friend. First of all, what everyone went through in the 60s has always been something that I marvel at because you had to have so much courage. Listening to the stories that you've brought to us, especially these past few episodes from your archives, it sounds like you don't even think about it. You just jump in (laughs) and you do what you had to do as an African-American citizen in the U.S. We just had to get it done. We had to move it forward. And then the responsibility was enormous. It, It was. And I think a lot of these men who were spiritual leaders They were pastors, they were leaders of churches. And I think Mm -hmm. it's important to realize that that's what it took to really get this ball moving, to get the change that they wanted to see happen. And I think we've gotten a little bit too political and thinking Mm -hmm. that policy and politics and politicians are going to make these changes. I think it's, it's going to take, again, community leaders stepping forward, especially the religious leaders, supposedly spiritual leaders that are going to have to do more to move forward with some of the things that are happening even now. And I think this is just another testimony to the history that we've seen through the civil rights movement. And it continues. I mean, we're, we're talking certain rights that are starting to be compromised. I think we talked about it last week a little bit about the voting rights. Yeah. I know that's a topic of discussion right now. It's still. Right. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> I thought we got over this. 50 right. years later, it's awful. And But interesting that you say this about the religious leaders, because politicians will always come visit their friends at the pulpit when elections come around. Yeah. And they should already be there. <laughs> right? Versus uh campaign time. They should already be involved. Right. And you just wonder where's the integrity anymore, you know, because does this someone who looks sincere have a hidden agenda? Because now we're living in a time where 
things get compromised mm-hmm. and you know where is the real integrity to say hey let's fix this in our communities and i think this is again just a testimony of men who given their limitations that they weren't like billionaires and right. dropping a lot of money to make change they were sacrificing themselves in many ways. And that's what I admire about people that have committed themselves and the women, the kids. We talked about the, the kids Young that stepped people. up and said, hey, we we don't think it's right either. And we'll go to jail. We're willing to go to jail for it. Right. And, and something we're going to talk about later in this uh, episode is about the letter from the Birmingham jail uh, that Dr. King wrote to the clergyman of his day. And he did share a story about if your little six-year-old girl who's watching a commercial sees an amusement park to go play, yeah. but you have to tell her she can't go because it's not for black children. You know? And he goes on in this letter, if you all are familiar with it in the book as well that having to explain to a child that's not for you. That you are not fully human. That is what you're telling that child. Not even equity. It's like you're not even fully human, fully realized as someone who could play in the park. (laughs) There's something that's uh, missing in your character and, and in your makeup, which is disgusting. And thankfully, you know, things have changed in terms of accessibility. We don't have limitations, but also having warm welcomes, you know, in some of these venues, <laughs> having a warm welcome. I, I say it's a little more covert. <laughs> right, it's we, more I think covert, we still have sure. some limitations. Right. Yeah, it's just uh, shaded differently, as we're seeing in the voting rights yes. fight here. Things can be um, uh, reworded, right, right. in on the ordinances and uh, the local laws that you got to catch them. People can be pretty sneaky. Yeah. But, Bryant, what was it like for you personally being at the memorial and seeing this uh, statue? I said, this is amazing. Just to see how it was designed and just to see that his presence is definitely felt. <laughs> when you look at the statue and you look at all the things that he wrote that's etched in stone, I think it's a great contribution to people remembering. And a lot of times we need to be reminded of what was and what people did in so many ways that was a sacrifice. The statue stands 30 feet tall. And from what I'm reading, the Alphas, that fraternity that I love, spearheaded the fundraising campaign. Now, Lowry, Reverend Joseph Lowry, had some choice words about that. And then that was pretty funny <laughs> that um, we, we can hear. <laughs> you can't get a bunch of black men to raise $115, $20 million. That, that ain't gonna happen, you know, you know that's not gonna happen. I don't know who's gonna, gonna pull the plug on this thing, but somebody's gonna prove <laughs> it, it, ain't, it ain't happening. I, especially you can't get a bunch of men to do it. Like if you had a bunch of women now, I'd be ready, I'd sit back and listen to it. But to have a bunch of black men raise that much money, and there hadn't been a single squabble. You know, nobody died. There hasn't been a single casualty. At least that's a formula for at least one death. (laughs) For many years, I heard Dr. King say, we must hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. But uh, I didn't really understand it. It was beautiful and it was eloquent. But here in this church this morning, it suddenly broke through to me that We talk about the valley of despair, and that's personal despair. But the mountain of despair was the mountain of opposition that was thrust upon him from the time that uh, he was pushed into the leadership in Montgomery. 
and all through his life, people piled opposition on him. It was mountains of, of criticism, mountains of obstruction, mountains of false charges. And, and it, was, it was that mountain that he had to carve out of the mountain of that despair a stone of hope. And he was able to do that largely through his prayer and his preaching. And when he began to get down, uh, as I said, uh, he was really on, you know, Birmingham had set upon him. The black leaders and the white leaders were asking him to leave. And he said, I can't leave. The only thing I can do is go to jail with the people in jail. So he went to jail and then in jail, he started hewing out of the mountain of that opposition, the opposition of the nation. I mean, Robert Kennedy was telling him he should call these demonstrations off. The white preachers, the black preachers even, didn't show up for the demonstration, but he went on almost alone. There were only three other preachers that went with him. And in jail, he did the letter from the Birmingham jail around the margins of the New York Times. And it was, that's what you mean by hew out of a mountain of despair, a stone of hope. And he came through time after time when people got on him for things that he knew were right. At first he was shocked that the criticism could be so vitriolic. Yeah, that was phenomenal to hear from Andrew Young. It was a brief interview, but he shared some very impactful information that I had no idea about Dr. King and, and some of the leaders during the civil rights movement. And one of the things that he shared was uh, something that he wrote, that letter from the Birmingham jail to the clergyman. Yes, letter from Birmingham jail was written in 1963. And Bryanton, these archives of yours that we've been airing, you're bringing us back to that time that tumultuous time in Birmingham in 1963 where the heroism of the leaders and the courage of those who were led, again, are just remarkable statements to who we are and what we've become as a country. And this is April 16th, back in 1963, Dr. King wrote, and I just wanted to read some of this to you all. He says, my dear fellow clergymen, while confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling on our present activities unwise and untimely. Now seldom, if ever, do I pause to answer criticism of my work and ideas. But since I feel that you are men of genuine goodwill and your criticisms are sincerely set forth, I would like to answer your statement in what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. My friends, I must say to you that we have not made a single gain in civil rights without legal and nonviolent pressure. History is the long and tragic story of the fact that privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. Individuals may see the moral light and give up their unjust posture, but as Reinhold Niebuhr has reminded us, Groups are more immoral than individuals. We have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights. The nations of Asia and Africa are moving at jet-like speed toward gaining political independence, but we still creep at horse and buggy pace toward gaining a cup of coffee at a lunch counter. Perhaps it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. 
But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears well up in her eyes when she is told that Funtown is closed to colored children and see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness toward white people. Letter from Birmingham Jail, so powerful, still relevant. But even though he was jailed, he was beaten, Martin Luther King held on to that nonviolence. He held on strong. Uh, I don't know that I completely understood it until I heard your interviews, especially with Andrew Young, talking about how impactful it was and how nonviolence really does solve more problems. You're right, Nicole, and Andrew Young also explained about how important nonviolence is in our society. I remember he said one day coming out of the UN, when they asked him about China, he said, well, a billion people aren't gonna disappear just because we refuse to recognize that they're there. And the New York Times, the Washington Post, CBS, ABC, NBC News said he has no right to say that. Well, <laughs> what's more simple truth than that? There was a billion people over there called China and we didn't want to recognize them. And he just said that was not realistic. And the criticism that he suffered for that was in many ways harder than the criticism he suffered for standing up to segregation because in the North, they knew segregation was wrong. So he had some support. But this was criticizing something that the Northern foreign policy establishment uh, wanted to continue. And he, he wasn't supposed to criticize that. But he said that I can't fight against segregation and then segregate my own morality. I can't be nonviolent at home and violent abroad. If I'm going to be nonviolent at home, I've got to be nonviolent everywhere. And we've got to hew out of this mountain of despair, a stone of hope. What do you, what do you share with young people to understand this? Exactly that, that, that Jimmy Carter listening to Martin Luther King through me and others, uh, Daddy King was still alive, but we were able to get, um, set up the orchestration to change Southern Africa. We had peace between Egypt and Israel. We had a treaty with the Panama Canal because we worked with the Caribbean and we worked with African leaders. And we didn't kill anybody and we didn't get anybody killed for four years. You look at the difference between Egypt and Libya. The Egyptians started their movement on their knees in prayer and they chose a nonviolent confrontation with the government. It was, there was some suffering and there was some bitterness, but it succeeded without destroying Egypt. Libya chose weaponry and the NATO nations bombed Libya into oblivion and we still haven't gotten rid of Gaddafi. 
And so I just said, nonviolence works. And we've got to say to young people, show me where violence has succeeded. Has it succeeded in the neighborhood, making our neighborhood safer because our kids carry guns and because they fight each other? That is absolute stupidity. And we've got to find nonviolent ways to relate to our children and our children to each other. As I said, we have a mountain of despair thrust upon us and we have to become carvers of stone and hew out of the mountain of despair our own stone of hope, just as Martin Luther King did. A shout out to VON. You know, in, in Chicago, the one place we could always count on when Dr. King was there was WVON. And that's the reason I stopped right now and said, I remember the bridges that brought us over. And you all were one of the bridges that brought us over. The thing that impacted me most about Dr. King was that he was fearless. And uh, he said to me on more than one occasion, Joe, I'll, I'll never live to make 40. I won't live 40. And I, was, I used to say, man, you know, don't talk like that. You're going to live to be an old man with your beard dragging the ground. But he died at 39. Now the thing that impressed me was even though he knew people were shattering him and stalking him and wanted to kill him, it never made him compromise his position on any issue, nor did he relent in his tremendous and intense pressure on strategy. He, he did what he thought was right and what would have the most impact on the efforts to gain a particular point. And, and gain certain mileage in their struggle. So I think his fearlessness, his, 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 his ability to sacrifice his own uh, self-interest for, for the good of the cause. And I think that, that's something we may be missing today, that maybe there are not enough, enough of us who would think first about the cause and what we're fighting for and make that our top priority can be the joy of a new beginning. That is, we can start out again on fresh, making the kind of sacrifices we used to make and, and having the kind of determination that, that uh, won't let us compromise. I still think we have to find a way to help white folks understand uh, what's in their best interest and that the agenda of the leadership of these people who are negative about everything, that agenda is not for, for, for the benefit of the country. It's not for the benefit of, of, of the majority of people in this country. It's for their own selfish agenda. And I think the sooner they understand that, the sooner they'll give up in choosing the path to follow at any cost uh, those who would lead us blindly down the path of bitter partisanship. I had a chance to talk to some of the people that were gathered. There was a church ceremony. Uh, this is prior to the dedication itself being canceled because of the weather. And a few ladies that I spoke with, they were in awe of just the recognition of such a man who we all know and we have read about and, of course, seen different clips, videos, documentaries. They were just in awe of how it's the thought of everything coming together as it did. And this is back in 2011. When Martin Luther King died, I was 10, and I was shocked, riveted, 
and watched the funeral with his children and his wife in awe and in sadness. And I think that today, to know that this service is about the unveiling has just brought me to tears and I'm about to cry now. To hear Mr. Lowry speak with his wit and huge personality was an absolute joy. To hear Mr. Young bring that political and sensitive um, understanding of non-violence and what non-violence can actually do. And it's not violence that brings about change. It is the peace and the understanding and the, the love of a nation that you don't destroy that nation, but you bring forth a change which is slow often and people are dispirited by that slow change. Um, but today we can see what change can bring and I think that Again, the, the monument is remarkable and I think that the people who have stood the test of time to um, galvanise people, to put money and backing um, and creativity to that monument, I have to say I thank them. I thank them on behalf of my generation and the generations to come. So what did you think of today? It was phenomenal, phenomenal. I think this is my first time being in a cathedral and just being a, a part of such a momentous occasion. So I'm just overwhelmed at this point. It was excellent. I mean, what do you think of what his life meant to others? Um, personally, it's, I think that Martin Luther King really made, he set the tone for young people, um, especially during that time where a voice is so important and standing for something that's like justice and integrity and love is, is essential to making changes in the world. So I'm trying to model myself by that and model my children's lives by that so that all of our lives exemplify something that's similar to or close to what Martin Luther King did so for us. And so what do you think the significance of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. what he's done and all that he means to? Oh my, he was really a major for justice. And to, uh, this is what I say to the kids that I work with, nursery twos, threes, and K-fours back in Canton, Missouri. Oh, we talk about Dr. Martin Luther King being that major for justice. And we think that without him, many of the things that we're enjoying today, we would not have been able to enjoy. It would not have entered our minds what this man has done. And how do you, what do you share with young people so they understand the true meaning of that time and now? Oh, well, I tell them. When we talk about Dr. Martin the King, we tell them about the things that happened before the segregation that was part of our United States of America. And then we tell them the things before Dr. Martin Luther King and the things that you're enjoying right now is a result of Dr. Martin Luther King's a legacy that he's left to us his service for mankind, his love, and, I, and always that love, this is the basis. It goes right to, back to uh, 1 Corinthians 13, where God talks about and describes his love. And Dr. Martin Luther King was one of those people who had really taken that very seriously and had put that into his life. And it came out of the testimonies that we heard here today. Even though he was the most famous nonviolent activist Dr. Martin Luther King's life was cut short. We will hear from the witness when we return. We're back with our Rewind in Time, 
Bryant, you've been bringing history to our airways with these wonderful archives. Just a reminder to our listeners, Bryant spoke with civil rights leaders who walked with Dr. King, and the interviews we're listening today are from nearly 11 years ago. Yeah, just about 11 years. So it was August of uh, 2011. Again, I was on assignment with WVON in Chicago. There was a small group of us that traveled there for the initial dedication of the Martin Luther King Monument. And that was in August, and then it was rescheduled for October. Had a chance to uh, sit down with Samuel Billy Kyles. Now, this was someone you could just sit for hours and listen to. Bryant, you asked Kyles a couple of times to really take you to that moment, right, um, when we lost Dr. King. Yes, I did. And, uh, you know, it was touching for me being a listener. You know, you can read a book. It's not quite the same as actually talking to the person that the book is about. Or you watch the documentary, but it's not quite the same as when you're sitting in front of the person that the story is about or who was a part of the story. I'm Samuel Billy Kyles, pastor of Monumental Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. I had the great privilege of being close friends with our dear brother Martin Luther King, Jr. One of the most exciting things of my life and something that will happen that I will always remember, I will never forget. And I do all I can now to keep that dream alive. But I was honored and thrilled to see people coming and looking up at that statue. I didn't realize it was as tall as it, as it is. But seeing people come and say a prayer or read a quote was thrilling to me. I'm so deeply moved. What is it about this one man, this one man, what is it that brings people from all over the world just to see his death place? It was mine to be with him at the time of the assassination. I was there. We were going to my home for dinner. And I was there at that crucial moment in history and in world involvement. And people come from everywhere just to see that place. I spent about two days a week in Memphis at the museum. The place where he was killed is now a museum, wonderful museum. And I meet people. I had the great honor of taking President Mandela through the uh, museum. I had the honor of taking uh, presidents and Supreme Court justices and people from everywhere. I even had the pleasure of taking the Dalai Lama to the place where King was killed. Martin Luther King didn't drop out of the sky. He wasn't, a, he wasn't an astronaut. He was a human being with all the frailties, all the hopes and aspirations that human beings have. Yet he did the most extraordinary things as a human being. Was there anything that he said when the three of you, four of you were together before he, that, before he died? Yes, yes. We almost missed that speech. We almost missed the mountaintop speech. 
it was thundering and lightning and raining, and he thought there wouldn't be many people at the church. So when we got to the church, it was nearly full. Martin said, you guys go to the church, I'll go to the motel, because we're behind on the Poor People's Campaign. And that's what we did. When we got to the church, it was nearly full. Abernathy walked in, I walked in, Jesse Jackson walked in, Andy Young walked in, and the people started clapping. Abernathy said, these people ain't clapping for us. They think Martin coming in behind us. And he went and, 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 and made that decision that he would go to the hotel. And he did go, but he came back to the church. If Abernathy had not called him, he, there would have been no mountaintop speech. But he did call him. And they were, I, hate, I, I don't want to use the, the term code, but they're a little, especially among people and, and religious people, it was something to hear him tell us simply, my time is short, I still have something else to do, let's get about doing it. And when he said, I may not get there with you, and I'm so certain he knew he would not get there. He said, I may not for us. I may not get there with you, but you will get to the promised land because God has allowed me to go up on the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. Well, we knew what he was saying. You talk that kind of talk, you're talking about heaven talk. And, and that's what he was doing. He was, he was giving us the signal, this is it. And he said, I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the coming of the glory of the Lord. And he did talk some about death threats and all that. Death threats came, so he said, don't tell me about it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Don't tell me about any more death threats. He said, tonight I'm not fearing any man because my eyes have seen the glory, coming and the glory of the Lord. But he made that speech and it was so powerful. I mean, it was just, we were all in tears when he finished. And even in, at that point, he was thinking of others, thinking of us. He wouldn't just tell us, I won't make it. It's, this is the end of, you know, this is my end. None of that. He went right on like he was doing what he was doing and he was doing what he was doing, straight through. Before you went on the balcony, what were you guys talking about? Do you remember? God talk. Like. <laughs> he talked about preaching at Atlanta. He said, Kyle, did you buy a new house? I said, yeah. He said, well, don't, we, don't be like that preacher in Atlanta. He bought a new house and invited Coretta and I to dinner. We went to dinner. It was a gorgeous house. But we got inside the house and didn't have a stick of furniture. So he said, now if I go to your house and see that you don't have any furniture, I'm going to call all of CBS, ABC, everybody, and tell them the Reverend Billy Kyle's bought a new house, but he can't buy food. Take up an offering for him. It was that kind of lightheartedness that people don't generally see about it and talk lovingly about his parents. It was three guys hanging out. That really was what it was until we stepped on that balcony. I said, guys, come on, we got to go. We're late. Martin said, no, we're not late. I called the house, dinner's now to six. You told me it was five. I'm in no hurry. Take a seat. So I took a seat. When that bullet hit him, 
toe half of his face off. And I had to do those things that you need to do in a situation like that. And I did them. And I wondered, why was I there? Of all the places I could have been, all the places he could have been, why was I there at that moment in history? And after a while, God revealed to me why I was there. Crucifixions have to have witnesses. And so I was there to be a witness. And my witness has to be true. Martin Luther King Jr. didn't die in some foolish way. He didn't overdose. He wasn't shot by a jealous lover. He wasn't shot leaving the scene of a crime. Here's a man with earned PhD at 28, a Nobel Peace Prize, the youngest to get one at that time. All the things he could have been. UN ambassador, university president, mega churches all over America. But here he is with all of these skills, taking interest and time, helping garbage workers. And they said, we will shoot this dreamer and see what happens to his dream. That's where the witness comes in again. Yes, you can kill the dreamer, but no, you cannot kill the dreamer. The dream is still alive. back reflecting on Dr. Martin Luther King and listening to the memories of those who knew him. Now as you all know Dr. King the orator left us with some memorable quotes some of which are on display at his memorial. For example out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. Now that's from I have a dream speech in Washington DC back in August 28th of 1963. Yes, and also at the memorial, you can read uh, one of his more famous quotes, even. It's been used a lot lately in some of our uh, world conflict here. But we shall overcome because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And this one from the March for Integrated Schools back in April of 1959. He says, make a career of humanity. Commit yourself to the noble struggle for equal rights. You will make a better person of yourself, a greater nation of your country, and a finer world to live in. We like to quote this one a lot, let's live it. Martin Luther King, in his letter from Birmingham jail, said, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly, affects all indirectly. So I'm thinking King the Orator got a lot of practice in the pulpit. <laughs> he was quite a talented preacher. And you were told, Bryant, by a friend of his that um, he was close to, that Dr. King even officiated his wedding? Yes, had the chance to interview Dr. Otis Moss Jr. Now he was someone who was also very close to Dr. King and performed that wedding ceremony. And he would also often march with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in a lot of these marches. When he went to jail in Atlanta, Georgia, I was in the courtroom when the judge sentenced him to state prison, hard labor, for a minor 
traffic violation and put chains on his body and hauled him across the state 230 miles. And yet, his courage, his commitment to nonviolence, changed the election of 1960. Without our personal memories, he performed my wedding ceremony. Uh, Edwin and I were united in holy wedlock by Dr. King and my former teacher, who was also a teacher of Dr. King. Dr. King gave the eulogy at the funeral for my first wife who died at the age of 25. I remember his words in the most difficult of times declaring that we're going to win because the moral arc of the universe is wide but it bends toward justice. I remember his reaction uh, to an American Nazi who ran upon the stage and attacked him physically in Birmingham, Alabama in September of 1962. And after the attack, Dr. King calmly, courageously introduced me as the keynote speaker for that particular event. And the meeting went on and we did not miss a beat. Bryant, thank you for bringing us back to this special day. We yes. know the lesson of Dr. King is often called upon to carry Black History Month, <laughs> but mm -hmm. these stories are too important to pass up. Yes, Nicole, I did speak with Irma Williams, and she's one of the ladies I interviewed, and she shared how she would often teach the children in her school and school district. She was a principal at the time. And she would always talk about Dr. King and the civil rights movement to the little kids. Did you ever get to meet him? Oh, yes, I did. Okay. Yes. What was that experience like? Oh, that experience was tremendous to see this man who was bringing so much hope. I mean, he lived the hope. Mm -hmm. I mean, everything he preached, he lived. And that makes a difference in the message and the testimony. Reverend Jesse Jackson. People coming from around the world, they would see Lincoln as a national figure. They would see President Jefferson as a national figure, if they know them at all. Dr. King is the world figure on that mall. He is the tallest monument on that, on that mall. He represents a kind of universalism. People are coming already from South Africa who, and, and who found their, their joy in the civil rights movement here, or from Asia, or, or India, or Australia, or Latin America. So already the most global figure on that monument, the one with the Nobel Peace Prize, Dr. King, stands as a great beacon of hope. So there'll be in years to come, many protests for jobs, justice, peace, human rights. It's a great time in our history. Let's hear some more of Dr. King's own words, Bryant. Okay, this was back in December 5th of 1955. Now here he borrows a verse from the Bible, the book of Amos, which he frequently reused in his speeches. It says that we are determined here in Montgomery to work and fight until justice runs down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Yeah. 
Love it. Yeah. Also in Montgomery, <laughs> he had um, said in a speech, we must come to see that the end we seek is a society at peace with itself, a society that can live with its conscience. Hmm. And then, of course, true peace is not merely the absence of tension. It is the presence of justice. Amen, 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 Bryant. Amen. Well... we've been remembering dr king with his friends and admirers we hope our audience gets a chance to visit the memorial as well you know what let us know if you have right and visit our website at beforeyougo.tv for more legends that's beforeyougo.tv please come on through and not just during black history month and before we go we want to leave you with one more excerpt from Dr. King's letter from Birmingham Jail. What a gift. I hope this letter finds you strong in the faith. I also hope that circumstances will soon make it possible for me to meet each of you, not as an integrationist or a civil rights leader, but as a fellow clergyman and a Christian brother. Let us all hope that the dark clouds of racial prejudice will soon pass away and the deep fog of misunderstanding will be lifted from our fear-drenched communities and in some not-too-distant tomorrow, the radiant stars of love and brotherhood will shine over our great nation with all of their scintillating beauty. Yours for the cause of peace and brotherhood, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. (laughs) 